Hey team, it's Matt Rinkine here. And you might have heard, my brand new book releases on Amazon on March 8th. It's been a labor of love that I think can really help you navigate some of the challenges you're experiencing in your own life. I go over toxic positivity and how to think you're in it for everyone else. In reality, you're in it for yourself. And I express that through this entire book and help learn from our own mistakes and how to turn the lens on ourselves and ask good questions. So go to Amazon on March 8th and you can get the Kindle version for only 99 cents. Just search for the book title, The Eternal Optimist. It's never too late. And you can download it directly to your device. That's it for me. Let's get into today's episode. Well, I mean, it started out challenging and premature. And they told my dad that it's okay. My mother can still have more children. Wow. Implying that this one wasn't going to make it. And I survived that. One of the biggest challenges was I was a practicing psychiatrist on Staten Island for a while. And then I moved back to New Jersey where I grew up. I developed a clotting disorder, had massive pulmonary emboli, and then developed post-flubitic symptoms. That's where my legs swell and I'm in pain all the time. And I left psychiatry. They told me to get my affairs in order because I kept getting recurrent blood clots and pulmonary emboli. They weren't sure why they were occurring because I didn't have any of the usual clotting disorders. And so I left practice. And then eventually, I had been hit by a car when I was in medical school, and I had an operation on my foot. Eventually, because of the clotting disorder and the venous insufficiency, the foot started to break down because there wasn't good blood flow through it. And then eventually, I had to get the foot amputated. And so I got an amputation on my left leg. I had been out of work for almost 10 years, so I lost 10 of the most productive years of my life. Lou, it's a real pleasure to have you on the show today, and I'm not exactly sure where to start because I have so many questions to ask you. I've really gone deep down the rabbit hole in Googling you and finding out about you, and I'm fascinated by so many things. So I'd love to just start with the way that we connect. We connected through Mark, Victor Hansen. He connected us in some way through an email, and you've responded, and here we are. So I would start with, how do you know Mark? Well, it was, it was I guess, about 1984. I got asked to go up to a church to meet Ogmandino, and I had met him at the Napoleon Hill Foundation in the fall, and then I went up for a Christmas party to a church in Michigan to meet him. And while I was there, the minister said, I got a friend by the name of Mark Victor Hansen. He said he was going to be in New York. When you get back to New York, look him up, and he gave me his telephone number, and we hit it off from the first moment. Yes. And we've been friends now for, it's coming on 40 years. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah, it's amazing. There's something about him. From the moment that I met him, too, his energy was there. It was real. And I'm aware of people that some would call a celebrity. Their energy is sometimes just, it's all a show. And for him, I felt a genuine energy. And I knew that he was someone that I was going to come to look up to as a mentor. When we had breakfast at the Phoenix Open, I was out there a couple months ago, in Scottsdale. And at the same time, we almost bumped heads. There was a napkin on the ground in the restaurant we had breakfast at. And we almost bumped heads, leaning down to pick it up for the lady that had dropped it. And I simply appreciated that he just had this natural way of wanting to help people and his energy showed up real well. Yeah. He's always helping people succeed. 
And the more people you help succeed, the more success you have yourself. I think he told me a story about you, something very interesting about you and Mother Teresa. What's that about? <laughs> well, I got asked to do the revision of Thinking Rich for the Napoleon Hill Foundation. I went around and did interviews. And I did them on my own dime because I wanted to imitate what Napoleon Hill did. I prayed that I'd be able to go to India and visit Mother Teresa. A gentleman by the name of Del Smith, Mark was on his board of directors, offered to fly me to India so I could interview her. That really had a profound effect on my life. It brought me back to the Catholic Church in a way that was much more solid, more intense. It helped my relationship with Jesus and with Mary in a way that was just astounding. And it was really, it was an amazing trip. All the way over, the person from Del Smith's Airlines, who was escorting me over, kept asking me to sing Amazing Grace. You know, I have a decent voice. I've been in the choir. And she just wanted to hear Amazing Grace. And we get all the way up to the mother house. We go up to where Mother Teresa is. And there's a nun that's receiving people. And she said, oh, you're the doctor from the United States. I said, yes. She said, you didn't get our letter saying not to come. What? I said, no, I didn't get the letter saying not to come. It got tied up probably in the mail. I never got it until after I got home. Wow. So I said to her, well, if God wants me to meet Mother Teresa, I'll meet her. And if he doesn't want me to meet her, that's okay with me. Whatever his will is, I'm going to live. And she looked at me and she said, well, God must want you to meet Mother Teresa. I said, and why is that? Well, she's been sick and she didn't go out of town like she was supposed to. She's been in bed for two weeks. But just a couple of minutes ago, she got out of bed and came out to talk to a lady and she's sitting behind you. What? So God must want you to meet Mother Teresa. She finished talking to this lady and she was holding the lady's hands, really in tense interaction. And then when the lady left, she stopped and said, you wanted to see me? And in the background, the nuns at the chapel started singing Amazing Grace. It was a moment to remember for the rest of my wow. life. It was absolutely wow. incredible. <laughs> and Donna, the woman who was accompanying me, said, you couldn't have programmed that any better. That had to be God. <laughs> so, and then I got to work for her with one of her priests to set up drug rehabs in Rome, Italy, and then in Mexico. Wow. What a cool story. What a cool story. Well, I'd love to go back in time. Our show, The Eternal Optimist Podcast, loves to take a look at people who, in the eyes of many, might be successful. And in any successful person's journey, it may look really easy from the outside, but we all know if you're successful that you're like a duck underwater, like you're always moving and there's always something that's been happening. And I'd love to start with something that's been challenging for you in your career or in your life, Lou, if we may. And you can start right now in present time or you can go back to as far back as childhood if you'd like. But what's something that's been challenging for you? Well, I mean, it started out challenging. I was premature and they told my dad that it's okay. My mother can still have more children. Wow implying that this one wasn't going to make it. And I survived that. One of the biggest challenges was I was a practicing psychiatrist on Staten Island for a while, and then I moved back to New Jersey where I grew up. 
I developed a clotting disorder, had massive pulmonary emboli, and then developed post-flubitic symptoms. That's where my legs swell and I'm in pain all the time. And I left psychiatry. They told me to get my affairs in order because I kept getting recurrent blood clots and pulmonary emboli. They weren't sure why they were occurring because I didn't have any of the usual clotting disorders. And so I left practice. And then eventually, I had been hit by a car when I was in medical school, and I had an operation on my foot. Eventually, because of the clotting disorder and the venous insufficiency, the foot started to break down because there wasn't good blood flow through it. And then eventually, I had to get the foot amputated. And so I got an amputation on my left leg. I had been out of work for almost 10 years, so I lost 10 of the most productive years of my life. During that time, I wrote a few books. I wrote The Last Gift of the Magi, but I didn't like it, and I couldn't get it published because my publishers didn't want a Christmas story that involved Jesus or the Magi. What? Huh. Okay. (laughs) You heard that correct. My regular publishing companies, and I use big ones. It was William Moros, Simon & Schuster, Beyond Words, Rizzoli in Italy. I had one book published only in Italian. And they wanted unusual relationships or interesting traditions in a novel. They didn't want a story about Jesus. Because this is really religious historical fiction. What I was trying to do with this book is teach about the mentoring process, teach about character development and discovering your flaws and looking at virtues. I set it aside because I couldn't get it published And then occasionally I would try to tweak it a little bit, but there were always certain things wrong. So I took some courses in theology. I got more prayerful. I started going to adoration on a daily basis after I became a sleep specialist. I finally was able to address what I felt were the defects in the book. Mark asked me to publish it. He said, why don't we publish it? I think if you're happy with the way it came out, we can make it work. And then we published it. And the cover had an error on it, and it delayed it, so it didn't make much of an impact Christmas last year. But we did sell a number of books, and now people contact me and telling me that they're in recovery, and they're reading it, and they really like it, that it resonates with them. The camel going out into the desert, having to learn how to not drink, how to work with a mentor, which would be like the sponsor in recovery. And right now I'm working on the sequel. Awesome. Awesome. So the sequel's almost done. Well, you've shared a number of places we could go so far. And a lot of the research that I had done around you had come back to your expertise in the sleep field. So I'd love for you to share why sleep specialist, why did that become something that was passionate for you? Yeah. Okay. So when I got my leg amputated, or just before I got my leg amputated, I became really sedentary because the foot had, instead of being planted, it turned sideways. And I was almost walking on the side and it was in tremendous pain every day. I gained weight. I developed apnea. And so out of curiosity, I started going to lectures on apnea and started doing CMEs online just to learn about it. And then I decided, you know what? I could probably, after I got my leg amputated, I could probably go do a fellowship in sleep apnea. And so I went up to Wayne State in Detroit, did a one-year fellowship, and became a sleep specialist. And it's been fun ever since. It's a great field. It's a new field, so there's always new discoveries. I became somewhat of an expert 
in uh, narcolepsy. I had a family member that had narcolepsy, so I was always more curious about that disease than all of the others. It was just a great thing. A lot less stress than psychiatry. Nobody ever commits suicide because they don't like their CPAP machine. Oh. You said CPAP machine. You just set up a trigger here. There's a member of my family that has a CPAP machine, and I'd never seen one before. And I remember one time we went on vacation with the in-laws, and I woke up one morning up in Maine at the cabin we were at, and I came downstairs, and I looked over for the first time, and I saw one of those machines, and he was wearing it, and he sat straight up in the bed and looked at me, and it looked like a stormtrooper. And I didn't know, I've never seen one before. I was like, whoa, what, what, is, what is this? So I've since seen that. And now I find a number of people use these CPAP machines. Yeah, about a 15 to 20% of the adult population. It's huge. Because the drop in oxygen when you have an apnea causes hardening of the arteries. It leads to high blood pressure, erectile dysfunction, heart attack, stroke, and cardiac arrhythmias. And then it causes weight gain and you get type 2 diabetes. So it just destroys your life if you don't treat it. Now, Lou, how old were you when you had your leg amputated? That was 2000, the end of 2003. So I was 54 years old. So about 20 years ago. And right before you had it amputated, you said that you started to gain a little weight. You were in incredible pain and you started to develop apnea. Yeah, I went up to 270 pounds, almost 270 pounds. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So you make a hormone when you're sleeping that allows you to feel full when you eat. If you sleep long, you make a lot of it, so you eat less. But you're awake less, you need less calories. That's how God controls how much food you can eat the next day. If you sleep short, you're awake longer, you need more calories. It takes you longer to get full. And when you have apnea, you don't make enough of the hormone because you're really not sleeping. Did you develop this skill and this expertise in being a sleep specialist as a result of starting to feel these, these conditions to regain your health? Or is there something else you were passionate about? No, I wanted to get back to work. I lost 10 most productive years of my life. And I didn't want to go back to psychiatry because I have chronic pain. And I just didn't think that listening to patients while I'm in chronic pain was a smart idea. You know, it left me a little more irritable than most. And I wanted to do something. I was a respiratory therapist before I went to medical school. So working with the CPAP machines was like second nature. Oh. I sit here as an interviewer, and there are just so many directions to go. I wonder if there's a specific direction that you might want to take our discussion around your career and your lessons learned and anything that's important to you. Well, you never know where God's going to bring you. You just never know. When I left psychiatry, I was somewhat devastated. I was really depressed. My vascular physician said, we're having so much trouble controlling your clotting that you need to get your affairs in order. So it was really a rough time. I never thought I'd develop a second career that would be this much fun. And it leaves me time during the day for prayer. And in the evening when I'm pumping my leg, because I have to pump the good leg to bring the swelling down, that's when I can get to do my writing or my research. So you just never know what God's got in store for you. But you can almost be guaranteed somewhere along the line, you're going to suffer. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, do you still feel like the chronic pain today? Yeah, right now my leg is swollen. It's throbbing. It feels like I've got an intense sunburn and my shoe got too tight. It was loose in the morning and now it's expanded to the point where the shoe is tight. So you go through a daily process where this happens on and off and by the end of the day it's throbbing. So how 
do you control that with medicine or just put your leg up or how do you work through that? I have a lympho press. It's a boot that I put on. It pressurizes the leg and presses down on it to milk out the edema. Wow. Wow. What does a day in life look like for a sleep specialist, a renowned sleep specialist, Lou? For me, I start out by walking my dog. One of the nicest parts of the morning. And I have a dog that's particularly slow. So there's some mornings where she's really frustrating. She just thinks she's out there to chase birds and squirrels and stuff and not to do her business. And if I take her out early, she takes even longer. And then I head off to morning mass because I like to go to mass every day. And then I go to an adoration chapel where the Blessed Sacrament is exposed. And I start my rosaries in the car And then I go through all of them during the day. And then I see patients right up until noon. And I kind of skip lunch and head out to church and continue my prayer. While I'm at church praying, I take the prosthesis off and rest that. It makes it easier for the rest of the day. And then I come back and see patients. Now I've been doing an occasional interview at the end of the day. And then I go home, have dinner with my wife before I start pumping or doing sleep studies at night, because they usually send me some sleep studies at the end of the day, and then I review them at the end of the night. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. It makes me really curious. You've spoken highly of your wife so far. You've mentioned her a couple of times. There's been a little bit of a smile that comes up in your nonverbal language. I can see you in the camera, and I wonder, how did you meet your wife? What does that origin story look like? Well, I moved out to Ohio. I was married to someone else, and she left. We got divorced. I became very prayerful and decided I would just focus on my relationship with Jesus and be done with all this stuff. And I had all these friends kept telling me about this Italian-American from Philadelphia who I should meet. And her friends, some of whom were the same as mine, were telling her about me. And neither of us wanted to meet anybody. (laughs) Okay. Okay. A dermatologist friend by the name of Anna, I was getting my leg operated on again, was supposed to bring me dinner. There was a group of ladies from the church that were going to bring me dinner while I was recovering because, you know, I couldn't cook for myself on crutches. And Jeannie brought me dinner and I was blown away. (laughs) You know, she made the best crab cakes I've ever had, and I've had them in Baltimore with the best. And these were just world class. I was stunned. So as a thank you, I invited her to the opera. It turns out she was an opera fan. She had lived in Italy for four and a half years. I lived there for six years. So she spoke some Italian. Culturally, we grew up in the same environment, a northern New Jersey Italian-American. She's a Philadelphia Italian-American. So it was like meeting the girl next door. And she lived about 100 yards away from my house, and I had never met her. Wow. Our cul-de-sacs were facing each other. She was on the other side of a ravine. (laughs) And the rest is history. Fantastic. The way to a man's heart is through his stomach. I've heard that somewhere. So you met Jeannie, and that's one part of life. Love that. Why did you choose to get into this psychiatry way back in the day? Okay, so I was doing my uh, clerkships during medical school, and I really thought I was going to become a pulmonologist. 
And that's who I work with right now. I work with pulmonologists because I was a respiratory therapist and I was really good at setting people up on ventilators and I understood pulmonary physiology well. And then I did a rotation in psychiatry and I had this really interesting dream. I went to talk to somebody who was a Jungian analyst and we went over the dream and I felt that it was implying that I should get into psychiatry, that God was leading me to psychiatry. When I graduated from medical school, I applied to a psych residency. The rest was history. It was really valuable. It was valuable in terms of my own growth and development. It was valuable in terms of my being able to write self-help books. I feel like I did a really good job as a psychiatrist when I was practicing psychiatry. What was the most meaningful thing about being in that position as a psychiatrist and helping people? Well, it was back at the time when they were just starting to use antidepressants. We were getting a lot of success with people who were depressed. It was really an exciting period of time in psychiatry because now we had a lot of patients that were responding to medications and they were doing well. Years ago, people would get into a psychiatric facility and they'd be stuck there for a long time. Now the likelihood that they'd stay there more than a week is unusual. So we've hit on the psychiatry and where it started. And I think that the recurring theme that I've heard in just about every story you've shared so far has been your relationship with Christ. And I'd love to delve into that. And When did that begin? And can you take us on a journey of what that's been like? Well, I've always been faithful to Christianity, but I got a little sidetracked with different things, studied a lot of other religions. What happened was when I met Mother Teresa, I really worked on my relationship with Jesus. I mean, I worked on it intensely, and she was really helpful in getting me to understand that it's about serving others. It's about having a deep relationship with the Lord. It's about having a prayerful life and working on being holy. Matter of fact, I have a self-help book that I'm working on, a real short one, where the theme of the book is true success is transforming your character and developing the virtues that God wants to instill in you. I'll work on that one once I've finished the sequel to The Last Gift of the Magi. Did you finish the book? I have not. I've only read the first chapter, so I've not finished it yet. When you finish the book, the title of the new book will become understandable. It's the return of the cloth. It occurs 33 years later. Wow. Okay. Good. Okay. It's really interesting. The first one's about Christmas. The second one's about Easter. Excellent. You've mentioned a number of times that you've written books, and I'm curious about your book collection that you've written. What inspired you to start writing books in the first place? Something Augmentino said to me, he said, you may have a book in you. He said, sit down and start to write. So I sat down and I was writing, you know, different things and just practicing writing. I had bought a little tiny computer. It was around 1984, 85. I bought a little portable computer so I could take it with me when I traveled. Word processors were just coming out and it made it a lot easier to write. One day I sat down to write and I fell asleep and had a dream. And I saw this flock of geese and this storm and all the stuff happening in a condensed version of a book that I eventually wrote called The Great Wing. It's about a flock of geese that have to make their migration to their winter home. And they have to 
Face the Adversity of a Storm. And that was the first book I wrote. The theology isn't really great. It's really about group prayer and the influence of the Holy Spirit on a group of people when they're praying together. And then after I wrote that, a buddy of mine, Les Brown, was on the radio in New York. And I happened to be in New York then. He had a radio show. And I called in. And he interviewed me for like oh, almost an hour. I got on the show. I had known Les from before he was famous, when he was broke and sleeping on the floor of his office Wow, in this big building in Detroit. And I helped him get his first audio programs produced. I connected him with somebody and he did all these interviews with them and he provided him with copies of the presentations that he did. And it really helped him kick off his career. There was a publisher who was in a cab listening to the interview, and she called me and asked me to write a book about the things I was talking about. Wow. And then I wrote Flawless. Flawless, the 10 most common character flaws and what you can do about them. (laughs) And that was probably my most successful book. Over 100,000 copies sold. Wow. Um, And it's about character uh, transformation. It's about identifying the flaws and knowing which ones to change. Then I wrote a little book about family values. It got purchased in Italian, and it never came out. And it was about these turtle doves that were living in the statue of St. Francis at the Porziuncola in Assisi, at this little tiny church in Assisi. And then I wanted to write something. I'm a fencing coach. Yes, I saw that too, yeah. And I wanted to write something about fencing, using fencing as the mechanism for teaching self-control and inner transformation. And so I wrote a prequel to Zorro, where he's learning how to fence with his maestro when he's at college in Spain. And they would not let me publish it in English, but they allowed me to publish it in Italian. It's a delightful little story. Mark keeps saying, we got to contact the Zorro people and have them allow you to publish it in English. Yes. Who knows whether it'll ever happen. But it's a self-help book using fencing as the medium. How do you find the energy and the drive to continue writing books after a long day of serving your patients and with your leg and having pain? Where do you find the drive and the energy for that? Well, I'm on the pump. So I'm stuck on the pump for about an hour, hour and a half. And I can either watch bit shoot videos about the various conspiracies that I enjoy, or I can stop and do a little bit of writing. Some days I write, some days I entertain myself. You know, I'm a Yankees fan, so I like to watch the synopsis of the games. And my son used to be Tucker Carlson's floor manager, and I still like to watch Tucker Carlson. A lot of fun. So I've got time. I like to do something productive with my time. Yes, and you just hit the word that maybe just kind of triggered me a little bit. You said conspiracies I enjoy. I I love a good conspiracy. I wonder if that's something that we might chat about. What do you mean by that, conspiracies you enjoy? I enjoy a couple myself. Well, you know, the whole thing, looking at how many different ways they cheated in the 2020 election and the 2022 election. I just find that fascinating because more and more stuff is uncovered. The gentleman that used to go around and interview people and they get people who do uh, secret videotapings. Yes. You know who I'm talking about. I do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he just released a thing where (laughs) 
they've been using just regular people's addresses and funneling money to candidates to the tunes of hundreds of thousands of dollars. And these are people who never made the donations and wouldn't have the $100,000 to donate. Wow. Wow. And it was just released yesterday. So it's really quite interesting what kind of things are going on. He always comes out with something very interesting. And then I like listening to And We Know, who's been describing what's going on behind the scenes. That's always quite helpful. It's important to stay up on these things. What was the guy's name? I can't think of his name. Well, James O'Keefe. James O'Keefe, yes. Yes. Yeah, he was with Project Veritas. They dropped him. People stopped funding Project Veritas, and he opened his own thing. And he yesterday came out with a massive money laundering scheme that he uncovered. And it's, it's absolutely brilliant. Evil people sometimes can be very brilliant in their deviousness, which is a shame. And then I like to listen to And We Know and the X-22 report. They're really quite good. But just stay up on what's going on and what they're uncovering. Because you have to understand that I think eventually the truth always wins out. God is like that. He lets evil people do what they're going to do, and he lets them succeed. You have to understand, the first punishment for any sin is the pleasure that the sin gives you. But eventually the punishment leads to where you suffer because of it. And so I think we're getting closer to the people who cheated are eventually going to get punished. When you say these things, I completely agree. And it brings up in the news nowadays, there are some rumblings out there that this whole COVID-19 idea of getting vaccinated was something that some people say was right, some people say it was wrong. There's a lot of information out there about it. And you're a doctor, and I've never asked a doctor this aside from my own physician. I can tell you right now that there are some people in my family that have been vaccinated and some people have not. Do you have any opinion on the subject of vaccination, non-vaccination, that conspiracy thoughts? Well, okay. So first of all, I'm a faithful Catholic. And so I don't take any vaccinations. Once I understood that all of the vaccines are produced because they used 183 aborted fetuses to make the stem cell lines. I stopped getting vaccinations. I didn't want to participate in that. And then we were told that the mRNA vaccine did not use a fetal stem cell line and that it was okay as a Catholic to get it. I waited to see whether or not they were lying. It turns out they were lying. So they told all these people who thought it was okay, who normally don't get vaccines, to go get vaccinated. Now, why would they lie about something like that? Other than the goal wasn't to treat you, the goal was to get you to take the vaccine. I have put in a religious exemption to all the hospitals I belong to to not get the vaccine, and they accepted that because I had a really well-written one that I got from a website that develops these things for people who need them. And then I asked to see the insert package from the drug, and the insert package was blank. Okay, what does that mean to the layperson here? It was deliberately left blank. They didn't cite any of the research that went into proving it was safe. They didn't cite any of the side effects or the possible side effects that they saw during the testing. And I found that very curious, almost 
in an ominous way, why wouldn't you cite what the possible side effects are? And then I saw the VAERS reports exploding. And then you see all the myocarditis in young people, the sudden death in people that get the vaccine. The more you're vaccinated, the more likely you are to get recurrent infections of COVID-19 or the coronavirus. So there's been a lot of really strange things going on. One of the things that people are talking about, and some of them are really well-renowned physicians who got censored because they were telling you that ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine were the treatment and you really didn't need to get the vaccine. An emergency use authorization can only be issued if there's no treatment. And so they didn't want the treatment to be made known so that they could get and keep the emergency use authorization. And now these doctors are coming out and showing that it was never effective in preventing the infection. It never was effective in reducing the severity of it, that all these things that we were told were not true. The masks have been studied with a lot of really good studies. It demonstrates that wearing a mask is not effective, and yet we were told to do that. The six feet social distancing and isolation was never demonstrated. It was just a hypothetical suggestion. Really? Because that went out quick. I mean, that was out right away in North Carolina, where I am, right around March 25th of 2020. That was out. It went out really quick. And there's never been any research that says that that's been substantiated. It was just hypothetical. So there's been a lot of really strange things going on. And so now you have to wonder, was the pandemic put into place in order to vaccinate people? And if that's the case, then something really nefarious is going on. And we need to see peer-reviewed articles that demonstrate effectiveness. And we're not seeing that. If it's not peer-reviewed, it's garbage. I'm wondering about it because it sounds like this could be the biggest conspiracy in the history of our country. I mean, it sounds huge. It sounds like it's one of those things, almost it's too big to be real, but then... It was just a couple of people, maybe, that could be in charge of making a decision like that. So it could be. Right. The people who would have been lying to President Trump. Yeah. It could be. So So there are certain countries where the vaccination is now banned because they know it's harmful. And there are certain countries that are still pushing it. And then there are certain countries that are actually looking to seek indictments against the people who pushed the vaccine. We're going to see some of that play out soon in different international courts. And it's just a complete screw up. All of my partners got the vaccine. They thought they were doing something right. Their families were vaccinated. I don't know what's going to happen to all the doctors that got them, but it doesn't seem like the vaccine is really extending life. There's no evidence that it does that. I'm waiting for the peer-reviewed articles that demonstrate it. It's just not there. And if that's the case, then there should be indictments. There should be major investigations. Yeah, I would agree on that. And I feel comfortable having a discussion with you about it simply because we're doing the best that we know how to talk about the facts of the matter, the things that we have seen. And you're a doctor. This is your field of understanding. Everything you say, pretty sure that we've fact check even what you've talked about. It all 
it makes sense logically. It makes sense from what everything you've described as a doctor. It makes me wonder why there's such a negative connotation or stigma or challenge to having a real conversation around it and not getting shut down or censored right away. Well, there's got to be a lot of people that are deeply concerned. I know some of my medical colleagues are really upset that they took the vaccine. And then I've got other colleagues that started using ivermectin even for the flu. And they're telling me that they think it's effective for the flu and we should be using it. I don't see any peer-reviewed stuff that supports that. It takes me back, Lou, to 2020 when it happened. And I did not want to get the vaccine. And, you know, in the place that I live, I still have an image and I'm out there in the public frequently and people would not connect with me or talk with me. I remember that there were some people that literally treat me kind of like I'm the black sheep and he's the one you got to stay away from him. He's a leper, right? It was very interesting to be a part of that. And then I took the vaccine. I got jabbed once. I felt horrible for some time and I'm one of the healthiest people. I never get sick. And I got sick after I had the vaccine and then recovered. And then they came out like a year later and said, we should start getting our kids vaccinated. That makes no sense. That's a recommendation that there's no basis in science on that. The kids don't get the disease. And if they do get the disease, it's very mild. The milder a flu or a cold is, the less viruses you're shedding. So they're not putting other people at risk either. So it's crazy. To address that whole thing about like the social isolation and the ostracizing of people, there's two ways that it's happening. I've got friends that are vaccinated and don't want to be around me because I'm not vaccinated. But I've never taken a flu vaccine since like 2008 when I discovered all the stuff about the fetuses that were aborted to create them. And then I've got friends that aren't vaccinated and don't want to be around vaccinated people because they're afraid they're shedding the spike proteins. So you have two different ways of looking at it, depending on whether you're vaccinated or not, and what you believe. And the problem is, there's not really good science. There's all these anecdotes. There's all these people who are telling us stuff using really poorly written studies as their justification. It's just a, I've never seen this happen in medicine before. Well, Lou, I could, I could go with you down the conspiracy theory place into areas I'm a little more versed in outside of COVID. It just came to mind because I don't have this conversation with a doctor very often. I was really curious on your perspective around it. So I'd love to go back to, you are an accomplished author, a sleep specialist. You've overcome a tremendous amount of adversity, especially from about age 54 when you had the leg amputated, which also, it kind of brings up something with the faith, with my relationship with Christ. When you shared that, that led to the opportunity to meet Jeannie. There's a tremendous like a story behind it as well. Yeah, because my leg was amputated and I couldn't get around and somebody had to bring me dinner. Dr. Anna, I think, deliberately failed to cook that day and asked Jeannie to do it. <laughs> the crab cakes. The crab cakes. Yeah, they were uh, great. Yeah. Yeah. And the last gift of the Magi, one of the issues is that he's going out into the desert to face adversity, to develop his inner potential. And then there's a huge rejection near the end of the book, and it looks like it's a complete disaster. And God uses it with perfect timing to protect the Holy Family. It's just amazing. 
when God's going to use you, it won't be your timing. It'll be his. It's amazing how many times that shows up in our life. If we have our lens looking at that, like this seemingly unfortunate circumstance that happened over here, and then how many positive things can come on the back end of that if we have the lens towards that. It's amazing. It's happened in my life over and over again, too. So amazing. It's actually how I met my wife. I met my wife on accident as well. Well, let me rephrase that. Not as well. I met her on accident by unfortunately stepping on her at a public speaking event on accident. And I turn around and there she is. And I'm starstruck pretty quickly. And a year and a half later, we're married. Now, 10 years in, we've got three beautiful kids. It all happened on accident when I wasn't even supposed to be at an event that I was at in the first place. And neither was she. <laughs> right. So you never Amazing. know how it might yeah. work out. Well, Dr. T, what are some other ways or places that we might find out more about you or might connect with you uh, to see your books? Well, there's a website, lastgiftofthemagi.com, and that'll have the introduction by Og Mendino's wife, Betty. Og was one of my writing mentors. On Amazon, I believe they have the interview with Mark. And if it's not there, it's on the Last Gift of the Magi website. He knows the backstory that I work with Og for a long time as my writing mentor. And it was really, he was more like a life mentor. He was talking to me about my kids and the type of lifestyle I was leading and how to stay balanced when you're writing. And then I work with Scott DeGarmo, who was the editor of Success Magazine. And he really helped me hone my writing skills. When I first wrote The Last Gift of the Magi, I sent the manuscript off to Og and he called me and he said, hey, babe, he called me babe, like Babe Ruth. <laughs> hey, babe, I got the manuscript and I found three typos in the first five or six pages. He said, so I threw it out. You need to start over and make sure it's more polished. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't what I was really expecting. Oh, that's good. But it was helpful. I gave the eulogy at Og's funeral. I gave one of the eulogies. That was quite an honor. But we were great friends right up into the end. He was just a wonderful man. And Scott DeGarmo was a terrific guy. He was really, you didn't send him anything that wasn't perfect. We wrote a book called Heart to Heart. It was about relationships and network marketing. Somebody had asked him to do it. He wanted me to do the interviews because he figured I was a better interviewer than he was because of my background in psychiatry. I did the interviews, I'd write up some of the stuff and polish it as best I could, and then he would turn it into a story. Excellent. You know, so that was a, Art to heart. one of the five books I've written. Okay. I think that's out of, public, out of publication at this point. Also, lastgiftofthemagi.com is one place. Are there any social media places or any other place we might find you, Lou? Not really. I'm not big into Facebook or Twitter or any of those things. They can just Google me and take a look at some of the stuff I've done. And I can attest. Keep it simple. I can attest to that. The Google rabbit hole is deep for Dr. Lou Tatalia. Tatalia? Tatalia. Tatalia. That's really nice. You said it well. Thank you. Excellent. So Talia means cut in Italian. Cut. Tartalia sounds like you're saying cut. And it's the word for stutter in Italian. Oh, okay. Okay. So I had an ancestor that stuttered. And he was a famous mathematician. And instead of signing his name as Nicolaia Fontana, Fontana is a beautiful name. It means fountain. He signed his name Nicolaia Fontana Tartaglia. <laughs> and they called him Tartaglia. 
Okay. Excellent. Yeah, it's a really unusual story. Well, Lou, I have three questions in the lightning round to wrap things up today. And I like to ask every guest this just to get their perspective on this. And I would ask you, this is the Eternal Optimist podcast. And I'm wondering when I say eternal optimist, eternal optimism, what does that mean to you? It means that I know God loves me intensely. He's always got a plan for my life. And no matter what it looks like, and when you read the book, you'll get a sense of that. No matter what it looks like, no matter what's going wrong, he's got the plan and it's going to work out according to his will. And I should not be disturbed. I should stay calm and just accept that he's going to figure out a way through all either the suffering, trauma, or what looks like a problem that I have no solution to. He'll figure it out because he's got my back. Wow. Awesome. That's one of the best answers I've ever heard. Thank you. I'd love to go to next question. If there were a song or a movie, just something that inspires you, what might that song or movie be for you, Lou? Well, right now, Rocky comes to mind, but I wrote a movie. It got optioned. It has all these themes. It's about a black opera star that falls in love with a white Italian-American. It's got a lot of really funny scenes in it because they're from two separate cultures. And, And how they get together is really quite amazing. But Rising Up is the song that comes to mind when I think about optimism. Thank you. Awesome. And last question, if there were, let's say, one to three books that have had a profound impact on your life, what might one to three books be that have impacted you, Lou? Well, Transformation in Christ, it's a pretty heavy text. And it really does say that when you work on yourself, you work on your soul, the Holy Spirit will lead you into a transformation that will make you more like Christ. Another book that I really like is Imitation of Christ, which is a classic. It's been around forever. And then there's a book that I read around Easter time every couple of years. It's The Dolorous Passion of Christ, and it's what Mel Gibson used to get the scenes right for the Passion. It was a mystic who was transported back in time and describes the Passion as she watches it at that time. And then one other that's really great, Magnificent Obsession. I read that every few years. That's what really helped me stay focused and want to become a doctor. Huh. It's, a, it's an amazing book. Um, oh. Magnificent Obsession. Uh, just a terrific book. Thank you. Awesome. Well, Lou, it has been an absolute pleasure learning from you and hearing your stories you have. It's been very insightful. I just want to thank you for putting a smile on my face and helping me feel somewhat sane around some of the conspiracies out there and helping me to find, well, find some more resources that can help our relationship with Christ. A lot of good stuff today. And from the bottom of my heart, I love you and I thank you for being on the show today. So thank you, Lou. And and let me remind your readers of something. Yes. Even though it's a Christmas story, Mm -hmm. The Last Gift of the Magi can be read all year round because it's really a self-help book. Excellent. Thank you. You're welcome.